the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back, America, to Hewitt. You may wonder why I've begun my interview with Karen Tumulty about her brand-new bestseller, The Triumph of Nancy Reagan, with that song, because it's the only song which I will always dance to with the fetching Mrs. Hewitt. And there is so much dancing in The Triumph of Nancy Reagan that I just I wanted to begin with that music. Karen Tumulty, this is a fabulous book. I just, of course, I'm a Reagan administration alum. I knew President and Mrs. Reagan. I spent time with them after the presidency, helping them with their library. I just think you've done a fabulous job. Oh, gosh, Hugh, thank you so much. You know, it really means so much to me because that is the reaction I am getting uniformly from people who were there, from people who knew them. And, you know, so much of what I have written, I think, really goes against against the grain, against people's perceptions of her, uh, you know, sort of outside the uh, outside the administration, outside in the country. But it is by no means uh, a, a soft walk for Nancy Reagan. I'm going to come to some of those parts because you cover all of the Ice Queen stuff, the China, the redecoration, the remoteness, the problem with the kids. You cover it all. But I want to start with my favorite story. And there are some things I didn't know. I should know this stuff. I don't know this stuff. My favorite story in the book is that at seating at White House dinners, state dinners, to which I was never invited. I was a briefcase-carrying junior lawyer. Uh, but they would have these fancy dinners. And George Schultz, who was the Secretary of State, who grew very close with Nancy Reagan, as you detail, would always be seated by the First Lady next to a gorgeous model. And he'd always have to dance with them. I didn't know that. And then she would send pictures of him dancing with these gorgeous models to the State Department. I find that to be utterly charming. George Schultz told me this story. At the, I interviewed him. He was 97 years old. And he still would just light up at the memory of this. And he, he says, I always got the hot babes next to me. I even got to dance with Ginger Rogers. Yep. Uh, you know, you, you talk to everybody, apparently. You even got my old boss, Fred Fielding, who is a crypt, who has never spoken to anyone to give you a quote or two. So how long, give us the background on the book, The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. How long did this take, and and how many people did you talk to in getting it ready? Um, I, it took me four and a half years, and this book was actually not my idea. It was uh, a few months after Mrs. Reagan died. I'd never written a book before. Uh, a few months after Mrs. Reagan died, probably the early fall of 2016, uh, Priscilla Payton, who is the top editor of nonfiction at Simon & Schuster, who is also my former editor at Time Magazine and a close friend, came to me and said, hey, you know, we want, we want a big biography of Nancy Reagan. Would you like to do it? 
And, you know, at the time, I don't, I didn't know that much about her. It, she, it just struck me that she, there was something here very complicated and fascinating about this woman that would be worth exploring. I, I didn't think it was going to take me four and a half years. And the, uh, the book I turned in was more than twice as long as what my contract called for. But when I turned in the manuscript, Priscilla said to me, she said, I'm looking for something to cut and I can't find it. Ah, uh, well, but that's yes, a fine I, compliment. That's a but fine compliment. I, um, you know, I spoke to scores and scores and scores of people, uh, you know, many of whom were in their 90s and really ready to talk about some things in for the first time. Um, I just, I just consumed everything I could find that had been written by and about either of the Reagans. I spent more weeks than I can even count in the Reagan library. I found oral histories. I, I combed over newspapers going back to the 1880s to um, get the story of her own very complicated early life. Uh, her mother is quite a big figure in this book. Um, I, I so learned in this book that her grandfather lived on F Street. Uh, yeah, that's like blocks from the White House. I never knew that. And I, you know, I, her father did. Yeah. Her father did. Her father. I, yeah, and and so okay, I'm just astonished. Sorry, her grandfather. Yeah, okay, I, I my notes said yes, grandfather. Her grandfather, so, okay. Edie, her mother's father. That's yeah. yes. Edie's and, father, yeah, F Street. That's amazing to me. She got a tie to D.C. I, I don't even know if she knew she had a tie to D.C. Did she? Well, she. Uh, yes, she must have known. It, but it's interesting because then the uh, the real pivotal moment of her childhood, and again, this is a complicated book, and there's a lot of pain in this book. And her mother, who's an ambitious actress, who in fact got her start at a theater that used to exist at 12th and F, um, her parents' marriage blows up just about the time Nancy, then named Anne Frances Robbins, is born. And her mother essentially abandons her with relatives. And that house, by the way, is in Bethesda. It is the house next door to my colleague, Dan Ball. Wow. It is a complicated story, and it's very accurately and carefully told. So I understand how she went from her father to change her name and how Edie ended up with uh, Dr. Davis, uh, Loyal Davis, and how she ended up Patty Davis changing her name. The name thing is very interesting to me, given the Hollywood background, et cetera. You, you've covered it with great discretion. And I also knew Maureen pretty well, and I used to substitute for Michael Reagan before I had a national talk show. So I know most of the Reagans pretty well. And many biographers have been defeated by the Reagans. Many. I, the, the, the road to confusion about the Reagans is enormously littered with people who were defeated, including maybe America's greatest biographer, Edmund Morris. Uh, Fred Fielding worked out a deal that gave him unlimited access, and he ended up writing Dutch, which was a failure of a book, and he would admit it. He just he couldn't figure out the Reagans. You decided to go at it via Nancy. I think that was the better path in. Well, I also just decided to let the facts take me where they would take me. But I must say I, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to Edmund Morris, because before he died, um, he allowed me to come over to his house in Connecticut and essentially spend a day digging through his files. Um, you know, and it was, it, sadly, he, you know, he, he invited me back. 
Uh, and sadly, you know, it's one of those things. You think, oh, I'm going to have that chance. But then he, he died suddenly. His wife, Sylvia, also died shortly after he did. But there was, there was just a gold mine in those files and things that, um, you know, he didn't use for his book because they were about Nancy. My very single favorite little bit of trivia that Edmund Morris had in there that uh, I, I detail in one of the footnotes is that when this young actress, Nancy Davis, comes to Hollywood and has this screen test arranged for her by the close family friend, Spencer Tracy, who I described the great debt he owed the Davis family in the book. Anyway, she does this screen test in 1948-49. She gets a contract, but the fact that MGM gives her a contract is one of the reasons they turned down Marilyn Monroe. Yes. Which is, uh, which is some, something Nancy Reagan herself doesn't uh, find out until the late 1980s and, of course, thinks it's hilarious. It may have been the worst business decision MGM ever made. But they made some very good decisions with her as well. She was not, and she was very self-aware, as you describe in The Triumph of Nancy Reagan, of her limits as an actress. She was giving her one big shot into to making basically a message movie at a time when message movies were not welcome. It, it's not surprising that they weren't. But when their careers decline, the Reagans are very self-aware of their careers declining. And they have to make a decision to go into politics. And the kitchen cabinet assembles. The famed kitchen cabinet, for anyone who knows anything about California, it's Justin Dart and it's Holmes Tuttle. It's a bunch of people. I know all their kids. I, I never knew the cabinet itself. And they would all be around the Nixon Library as well. And, and for benefit of the audience, I escorted Nancy Reagan through the opening of the Nixon Library. I was there at the funeral of Nixon, which uh, Karen Tumulty describes very accurately how Nancy Reagan had to take President Reagan's arm. And the week before the Houston Convention speech, I was with the Reagans in Century City, and I noticed then what you detail, the beginning of the slow decline of President Reagan into the darkness of Alzheimer's, uh, very touchingly and correctly recounted in The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. So I, I know a little bit about her, but I, I don't know what you know, and I think it's just glorious that that access Edmund uh, uh, Morris was granted has been recycled into utility. And, I, and the backstory on that is Edmund Morris worked with Fred Fielding, who's quoted in your book very carefully, to arrange for that access. And then he came out with Dutch, and you're being kind to a man who was kind to you. Dutch was a failure, and nobody reads it because it's fictionalized, and it's not a biography. It's a weird kind of hybrid book. Only Lou Cannon got close, and Lou Cannon didn't have many ambitions for this book. He just wanted to do a, 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 you know, a straight-line political story you wanted to find out the Reagan remoteness between the president and his children, the Nancy contentiousness, and what I might want to compliment you for. I wasn't in town then. I was in law school. I joined the Reagan administration in 83. Her hardest first year of any first lady ever. I think you accurately portrayed that was the worst first year of a first lady ever. She, she made a lot of mistakes. She brought a lot of her problems on herself, but this— but the thing that overrode everything, of course, was the assassination attempt. And I tried to take the reader through that day with her at one point, minute by minute by minute. Yes. Just so that they could understand how traumatized she was by this. And so later when we discover she's been relying on an astrologer, I mean, which is just so goofy, it's almost impossible to believe it doesn't make sense, but it becomes understandable because 
you realize that this woman who is anxious and wary by nature to start out with, a woman who has always believed that life is just a trap door and everything's going to fall out in any minute, you know, she is tormented every time her husband sets foot outside this White House. Just determined, She's just fearful that there's somebody else out there waiting for him. Um, so she will grab on to just anything, whether it makes sense or not, that makes her feel like she has a little iota of control. Although, can I just, getting back to Edmund Morris, he had so much access that Reagan used to joke that Nancy sneezed in bed the other night and Edmund Morris said, Gesundheit. <laughs> well, I want to... I want to point out one of the things she did besides consult astrology charge is that she made connections with people who could help her. And you outlined, for example, Jeremy Zipkin, the socialite. Uh, uh, I don't know what he did other than go to parties, uh, the, the, but the very best source for gossip, right? The very best insider. She's got the very best best friend in Betsy Bloomingdale. She's got the very best lawyer in Fred Fielding. She got the very, like, like Ken Kachigan is the very best writer that Reagan got. The, the Reagans had an eye for talent that was, I think, trained in Hollywood. What do you make of my theory? Um, I think that she, she more than he did, um, in that he, well, the, the, there are two philosophies here. His philosophy is you hire the best people you can find, and then you trust them, and you let them do their jobs. She comes at it from the exact opposite point of view. You know, trust is to be earned, not assumed, and the minute somebody betrays what she thinks is her husband's, her husband's goals, her husband's agenda, they are out of there. And that is why people, you know, as I write in the book, Nancy Reagan didn't set foot in the West Wing very often, but everybody who worked there knew when she was not pleased about something. And people who, who were not in her favor didn't tend to last for very long, most famously when she engineers the firing of White House Chief of Staff Don Regan. But there are a lot of other people in the course of those eight years who, who disappear in, in large part, not because the president has decided they needed to go. He was very forgiving. He was generous with second chances. I mean, all you have to do is look at David Stockman. <laughs> and, but she, would, she was just relentless. She was just fearless in just getting rid of people that she did not think were serving her husband's interests well. And that is a role which first ladies have traditionally played, like Edith Wilson, without a lot of attention, but people knew. And I, I have to compliment you. I sent an email around last night to force Fred. These are the uh, handful of lawyers that worked for Fred Fielding in the first and early second term. He lasted five years. Because I learned from your book, Karen, that before I arrived there, I was the last guy in and the first guy to leave. I was there less than uh, 15 months as an assistant counsel. And of course, Fred was only seven lawyers plus uh Dick Hauser, who was often on the golf course. I have to say that in case Dick is listening. And and you alerted me to the um, the reconnaissance teams that Fred had to send into the uh, east, into the residence, to see if Nancy was being reluctant to give up gifts. I'd never heard about that, and I had it confirmed for me last night, a fiancé, if not further, by one of the participants in Fort Fred on the surveillance of the gift thing. I just think that's fascinating. She begrudged it so much. And fielding, of course, also through the... The, the group of the, the gang from California out of the old EOB, he was the enforcer, and she would call Fred every day. And I used to, we used to do the, 
White House Council staff meeting on Friday morning. There was only two people who could break into it, President Reagan and Nancy Reagan, and the president never called and Fred was always interrupted. So you know that whoever called him in the morning and the for Fred signal, I've heard that before, but I've never seen it in print. So you got that out of Fred. She was vigilant through not only Fred, but she had a couple of other people who worked with her. One of them is your boss now, Fred Ryan, who was everywhere and doing everything all the time uh, for, for Nancy. And, you know, sometimes she became an ally of the White House Counsel's Office, not just Fielding, but others. Uh, there is a, another scene, uh, later Peter Wallison, uh, who was second counsel yeah. for a year, um, where Ronald Reagan, and this is something that really resonates today, Ronald Reagan didn't think it was fair that the president had to disclose his tax return. So in 1987, he's getting ready to leave office. So he goes to the White House counsel and he says, you know what, I'm thinking I'm not going to disclose my tax returns next year. He says, it doesn't help me. I'm not in office much longer, but it'll be a precedent that would make things fair for my future, for, you know, people who follow me. Well, Wallison, he thinks this would be a political disaster, but before he can make that argument to President Reagan, Nancy steps in and she goes, no, 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 no. You're not going to do that. You're, you get crucified. People would think you just have something to hide. And so Reagan backs down from this idea. And then, as we know, every president since then, up to Donald Trump, discloses their tax returns. Let, let's talk for a moment about the things the audience will most want to be reminded of. She was a clothes horse, and she was glamorous. And she engaged Georgetown. I love the scene that you describe of going to Catherine Graham's house in Georgetown early on. My old boss, President Nixon, said she was uh, uh, making her peace early, building up equity, I believe was the phrase, which I've never seen before. Nixon never was able to do that with the Georgetown set led by Catherine Graham. Nancy Reagan worked at it. And of course, in the Ritz-Carlton, there is that famous table that she sat at often with Betsy Bloomingdale and other people. She worked at it because she knew that there is an invisible lubricant on the wheels of Washington. And I think she may have got that from the Hollywood system. Do you think that's where it originated? You know, I think so. I mean, and the, also, it was, in, there were, it was very, in, she defined success in a very conventional fashion. She she didn't want her husband just to be, you know, put on a pedestal for the conservatives to worship. She wanted him to be respected by the traditional establishment. And she did work on that. I mean, her friends were people like Catherine Graham, who she met through Truman Capote. Um, and yes, and, and the other thing to remember is the Reagans are coming to Washington right after the Carters. And the Carters, they, they were not big entertainers. They, they would not serve anything harder than white wine at their parties. Um, so the social set in, in Georgetown is feeling like a you know, neglected bell. And all of a sudden, the, the Reagans come to town, and, and suddenly they are, they are back in action. And, yes, I did find a letter in the files from Richard Nixon, who had suffered a thousand slights. As from what he called the Georgetown set. And very early on, he writes a letter to Mike Deaver and just says, this is so shrewd and it is going to serve you so well in the difficult times that we all know are coming. I, you know, I've never seen that cited before. So my hat is again off to your research skills. Let's talk just a little bit about uh, 
uh, Barbara Bush, because Fetching Mrs. Hewitt read Susan Page's fine book and is astonished that Nancy Reagan struck Barbara Bush off the dinner list for uh, Charles and Diana, not once, but twice. And we just can't figure that out. I never saw that. You know, I, they were both on the tour that I led at the Nixon Library when it was opened. I never saw any. I've never read about animosity till the Susan thing. Why? What, what was going on there? Uh, Nancy Reagan and Barbara Bush. And I, I now have a theory after reading The Triumph of Nancy Reagan, but I want to hear what you say first. Well, and, you know, I asked so many people who were in the middle of this about it, including James Baker, who was, of course, George Bush's closest friend and White House chief of staff. The most obvious and simplest explanation is the very brutal 1980 Republican presidential primary, which uh, the husbands sort of let go of and made their peace, and I think the wives never did. And Nancy always, Barbara, let's face it, Barbara could dish it as well as take it. Um, And, you know, she never sort of, stopped letting people know who she thought should be sitting in the Oval Office versus who should be attending funerals. Um, Also, George Bush had his own political agenda, his own future in mind. So Nancy always was concerned that the Bushes were really looking out for his future and not her husband's present. But let's get beyond the sort of obvious political reasons for the friction. Um, You look at the very, very deeply dysfunctional Reagan family and set it up against the Bush family. Bush is surrounded by by (laughs) loving children, loving grandchildren. The other thing is Barbara Bush has roots in the sort of aristocracy of this country that go back to the Mayflower. Double bingo. Dismissed as the parvenu culture of Hollywood. Nancy Reagan is lambasted in the media for her fancy clothes and her rich friends. Barbara Bush always also had a closet full of designer clothes, but she is portrayed in the media as America's grandmother. Trifecta. So all of this, all <laughs> of this makes for a very poisonous relationship between these two women. It, it's so deeply rooted in psychology, not Barbara Bush's psychology, but uh, First Lady Reagan's psychology. And I, I'm not making a condemnation judgment here. I'm just making an obvious observation, having read The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. Stable, wonderful, uh, growing family of, of children. And she and Barbara Bush suffered. She lost her child, right? I mean, you don't suffer any more than that. Right. Her daughter. And, and so she suffered. But her husband was a real war hero. Ronald Reagan served, but he couldn't see anything. So he served in the motion picture industry and took some hits for that. George Bush got picked out of the drink uh, as a fighter pilot. Uh, they, they go down and make it on their own. Uh, Ronald Reagan made it on his own, but people don't credit Hollywood with that. They credited Bush with, with leaving Maine and going to Texas and doing that. And then they do fight the Battle of 1980, which is a, a nasty, drawn-out affair. And—, and Politicians tend to put that aside in the service of their own goals, but mostly it's the parents. And, you know, Draper is is Barbara Bush's brother, and he's a hero, and the parents are wonderful, and the Bushes are the Bushes. And Nancy comes out of the most dysfunctional, crazy, Edie's nuts. Uh, I didn't know anything about Mrs. Reagan. That's a wild ride that you describe, uh, Karen Tumulty. That is a—she is—and by the way, 
at the end of the day in 1966, when Ronald Reagan is running for governor, I didn't know this, she took over fundraising in Arizona and shook down the big money for Stu Spencer that you detail. So Edie, Edie's all over this this climb. She must have been, did she ever have a book written about her? Did she, I don't know when she died. I can't remember when she died. When did she die? Um, she died very late in the Reagan presidency in 1987 of, of Alzheimer's. Uh, her husband. Loyal Davis, who was the second most important man in Nancy Reagan's life, died in 1982. Um, yeah, he, you know, I, she does great damage to her child by abandoning her, but she also redeems her childhood by finding Loyal Davis, marrying Loyal Davis, and, and bringing some stability in there. But there are so many parallels in the Davis marriage that you can later see in the Reagan's marriage, um, it, you know, it's it was just fascinating to me. And it was confirmed by Nancy's Nancy's stepbrother, who said the exact same thing. Um, can, can I just tell my one favorite Barbara Bush story? Please, please. So so Barbara Bush, like I said, she she could dish it and not just take it. So there is a trip to New Hampshire on Air Force Two as George H.W. Bush is getting ready to run for president. So the back of the plane is full of reporters, the way it works. And Barbara Bush goes to the back of the plane and in front of the reporters does an absolutely brutal imitation of Nancy Reagan, which everybody finds very funny. But um, Lou Cannon says to Barbara Bush, he says, no, Mrs. Bush, Nancy Reagan has spies everywhere. She's going to hear about this. At which point Barbara Bush turns to Lou and says, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and she did, and she would, and they did not. Time for a pause now in this edition of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. I want to remind you that our sponsor is andrewandtodd.com. They're with Sierra Pacific. They lend you money to refinance your house or buy a home or help your son or daughter become investors in real estate by becoming a non-occupying co-borrower. They help senior citizens with reverse mortgage. They help veterans with no money down mortgages. They help you refinance. So if you need to get money out of your house or you need a whole new house, go to andrewandtodd.com or call them at 888-888-1172. Now back to this edition of Hugh Hewitt and the interview. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. 
reconcile. I want to spend our, our final moments, uh, Karen. We got a, a couple more minutes. Again, the book, The Triumph of Nancy Reagan, needs to be read to be appreciated. And it's a period of time that people will not understand. The 80s in Washington, D.C. are unique. The Reagan presidency is seminal. It leads to the collapse of the Soviet Union. It leads to an economic theory that is still embraced by Republicans. The social side of Washington is discussed. The China controversy, the close, the, China, uh, the, the redecoration, all of it laid out by Karen. But I want to go back to the family, because uh, General Grant said, tell me about the boy and I'll know the man. And I believe you've told us about the girl, and therefore I understand Mrs. Reagan in a way I just have never done. And I wonder if, if has Fred and Jenny read this yet, Ryan? Have they commented on it to uh, you? They, you know, the, here's, the, here's the deal. Fred was incredibly uh, gracious with his time. But don't forget, he's my boss. Yes. It's my day job. So I have to give him a great deal of credit. Um, he never once pushed me in any direction in terms of what my conclusions would be about her. And no, he has not said anything about the book, which, quite frankly, I I appreciate that uh, because. He oh, he's really going to have loved it. And Jenny will be the one to tell you. Uh, Jenny and I went to law school together, so I first met Fred at the Law Quad in Michigan in 1981. And when Ginny reads it, she spent a lot of time with Mrs. Reagan. I mean, far, 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 far more time than I did. I bet by orders of magnitude, she knows Mrs. Reagan. I would love to have Ginny's view of this. Fred will be discreet. He always is. But I would I would love to. And Ginny is always discreet, but she'll tell you. And I hope we sat next to each other in an airplane not long ago. I hope that repeats because I want to ask her about this. So I want to go back to the childhood. Uh, you mentioned that she was abandoned. I want people to understand what that means. She wasn't. She wasn't left without food and care. It's just her mother lived on the road as an actress. And when they finally settle in Chicago, the extraordinary deal of Spencer Tracy staying with your family. I mean, the larger than life Spencer Tracy and getting career advice from Katherine Hepburn. I didn't know any of this, Karen Tumulty. And it's remarkable. It's a movie. By the way, has this been optioned? Uh, it, it has not. But, uh, you know, I, I could I felt... It was cinematic as I was writing it. But can I just, just step back a little here? Because as, as juicy and as fun and as cinematic as so much of the book was and as so much of the, what I came across as I was doing research was, what I really hope, though, people take away from this book is her impact. I mean, the fact that this woman had an ex a really extraordinary impact on some of the biggest policy successes of the Reagan administration, um, on Ronald Reagan's place in history. Uh, ultimately, when he becomes incapacitated, it falls on her to shape and guard the legacy. And as complicated as she was, as painful as much of the book is, I think Ronald Reagan really chose pretty well, and I think the country kind of owes him a debt for that. Oh, and I want to also stress two things so people don't get this, uh, miss this. It's a love story, and it's one of the greatest love stories ever told. And if you've been to the Reagan Ranch, you understand how much of a love story it is. And I had been there and marveled at the twin beds wired together and the fact that she spent one out of eight days at the ranch riding with her husband. They just loved each other so extravagantly. But the other lesson of that is the downside for the children in a mixed marriage and in the and, and in the children that Ronald and Nancy had together, the devastation of that kind of all-encompassing love upon the children is pretty damn complete. And you detail it right down to Maureen 
delivering a badly prepared introduction of her father. She had to use her own notes because they left her out of the introduction that she was supposed to be delivering and only mentioned Ron and Patty. I mean, that's brutal. That's just brutal to be the, the children of the first marriage who are cut out of the life. And Michael, of course, was adopted, and you detail all the drama. It's just, it's a real cautionary tale for parents. Uh, do, do you agree with me about that? This is a cautionary tale for ambitious well, parents. Nancy Reagan herself writes, uh, all I wanted to be was a good wife and mother, and I guess I was more successful at the first than at the second. Uh, theirs is, in fact, a relationship of two people bound so closely together who are just so complete unto themselves that there really isn't any room for anyone else. And, of course, yes, the collateral damage of this is the effect it has on all four Reagan children. Uh, Maureen, who is developed an interest in politics before her father did. She was a Republican before he was. Big activist in California. I knew her well. Yep. Big, big activist. But she wanted to be part of his gubernatorial campaign. She she wanted to be in there. I mean, she had stayed up late at night, you know, licking envelopes for Richard Nixon in 1960. And she goes and asks her father for a role in the campaign. And he just says, well, you know, we've hired people for that. And, you know, he just shuts her down. Did you notice, Karen, at the funeral, this before you began, I watched the funeral of Mrs. Reagan on TV. George Schultz and Pete Wilson, the Marines, sat ramrod straight in the front. They would not do the small chat. You know, Arno was working the crowd. The Californians always work the crowd at, at funerals. It's sort of like uh, de rigor to, to kind of work the crowd at funerals. Not Pete, not George Schultz. They were Marines, and they were their honor. She had a great deal of loyalty. And Fred, uh, a very, very loyal to her dick. Everyone who worked in the White House, very, very loyal to Nancy Reagan, who survived. I don't know if Don Regan was not particularly loyal to her. But did you run across that again and again and again, people who wanted to tell her side of the story and defend her? Um, yeah, but, the, 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 you know, they, they were also people who understood her complexity, you know, understood her flaws. By the way, and she, uh, the other thing that's really important is that she is truly the only person in the world to whom Ronald Reagan is truly, intimately, personally close. He's not a, you know, Bill Clinton with a Rolodex that's three miles long or LBJ who knows the, knows the dirt on every single member of Capitol Hill. Um, so she, she believes in her husband's greatness, but she also knows his vulnerabilities. She knows his weaknesses. And she, she, she watches this back. Yeah, well, the aversion to personal conflict is well documented, and it's so true that the president had. He did not like conflict. Uh, I do, and you detail all that. I want to go back to make sure we include. I mentioned the abandonment issue. She wasn't abandoned by Edie. She lived with family when Edie went on the road. And then when Edie mailed Loyal Davis, married Loyal Davis, I want you to talk about him because you spent a good deal of time that is well worth it to learn about a great American surgeon uh, who established his mark on Chicago, sometimes not to great effect. People didn't like him very much, but what an overpowering presence to have come into your life if you are feeling abandoned or feeling insecure. He's the rock, and so she ends up marrying another rock. That's right. Again, I'm not, not a warm figure. He is the Neuros, 1920s, think about that, what, you know, this field is in its infancy. 
professionally, he is absolutely brilliant, but he is, you know, unbending, a stern disciplinarian, an atheist, by the way. Um, and he, the, the other thing that, that really struck me is that people in Hollywood, Nancy Reagan always became this, this surrogate for what people were disappointed about in her husband. So when you talk to people in Hollywood, and I did, they would say, oh, well, he became a conservative because his right-wing wife and her, her right-wing father converted him. But then when he gets to the White House and some of the conservatives can't understand some of the things that Reagan does that don't quite fit with them, they'll say, oh, that's just because of his liberal wife. So it always, you know, she catch, as I said, if he was the Teflon president, she was the Velcro first lady. Uh, and, and by the way, it's just, you, you accurately portray Reagan's rise and, and his ideological. Uh, it's not an evolution; it's a transition, assisted by others like William F. Buckley and the and the kitchen cabinet. I want to close, if I can, Karen, with their first date. Now, I think I sent you a note on on a direct message saying I cannot believe. I mean, I, I've never stayed up that late in my life. And then they did it night after night after night. These Hollywood people are different from you and me. I, if you're like me at all, I'm just not this kind of person. Their first date's remarkable. Would you tell people about it? Sure, sure. So, um, first of all, the important thing to know is this is the low point of Ronald Reagan's life. He would later say, if Nancy Davis hadn't come along when she did, I would have lost my soul. Um, he is, he, his film career is coming to an end. It's running out of steam. His first wife has walked out on him to his great dismay. Primarily, she just got bored with him. And so she, Nancy Davis has kind of had her eye on him for a while, and she keeps coming up with ways for their paths to cross, and she never quite makes the connection. So one day in November of 1949, she sees her name on a, the name Nancy Davis on a list of people with suspected communist ties in the Hollywood Reporter. And I found, by the way, I have a copy of her scrapbook that she kept from those days. Oh, wow. You can see the little... So she goes to Mervyn Leroy, famous film director, who's directing a movie that she has a small part in, and she says, I, I need help with it. The Red Scare, you know? So he, she, so they decide to go to the head of the Screen Actors Guild, who coincidentally enough, the union president is Ronald Reagan. So Marvin Leroy comes back to her and says, oh, Reagan, said, and Reagan is really disappointed when Leroy calls him because he's hoping he's calling him to offer him a part. And so the director comes back to Nancy and says, don't worry about it. I've talked to Ronald Reagan. He, he says, it's another Nancy Davis. We've got it fixed. And then at that point, Nancy Davis says, nope, I'm not going to be really, I'm not going to really feel good unless he tells me so himself. So there's, they set up this blind date. And he, Reagan tells her on the phone, you know, I've got an early call from the studio the next morning, which Nancy immediately recognizes is a white lie that people in Hollywood do because you don't know if a date's going to be a good date or a dud. And when he shows up at her apartment door that night, he's literally a broken man standing on two canes because he has broken his thigh bone in six places in a charity baseball game. But the two of them go out. They are captivated by each other, and they end up out until 3.30 in the morning. He even tries a few dance steps on his broken leg. And they go out every night 
for about a month. And but then all of a sudden he just quits calling. And he is dating around. As he has written, he was spending $750 a month. Now we're talking $1949 in nightclubs because he is, uh, you know, he's a suddenly single man. He's still actually carrying a torch for Jane Wyman. And she begins to realize that this, what he says, which is that this is a man whose heart is in a deep freeze and that she's just going to have to wait him out. And his mother at one point tells her, Nellie Reagan tells Nancy, who she likes a lot better than she did Jane Wyman. She says, I can see that you're in love with him, but he is not going to, he's not in love with you. You're just going to have to wait. You will know when he loves you, Nancy, you will know. And so it really does take a lot of patience on her part until finally he suddenly realizes how important this woman is and, again, how she really is the, the cure to his broken heart. There's a funny story of, of Stu Spencer at the train at Union Station in L.A. having to endure one of their partings, which is like a makeout session among teenagers in public on the train. I just that's a great detail. Obviously, Stu Spencer spoke with you at length, Karen Tumulty. Uh, in fact, everyone spoke to you. I, I just want to say well done. It's a terrific Thank book. You. The Triumph of Nancy Reagan by Karen Tumulty. It should be optioned. It will make a great series. It will be astonishingly successful on the small screen, as was uh, President Reagan when GE found him, and as Nancy Reagan was throughout her entire career. Karen Tumulty of The Washington Post and the author of The Triumph of Nancy Reagan, thank you so much. Thank you, Hugh. I really appreciate it.